If you would, go with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. Last week we saw the early church solving a problem that they had in the initial days of the church where the church was growing and it was growing fast and it was multiplying. And there were a number of widows who were in need and they were depending upon the body of Christ for their needs. But a problem arose when one group of widows was not being taken care of as they ought to be. There were a group of uh, Jewish Hellenized Jewish widows who were not being uh, receiving all that they needed. And so they solved this problem by appointing seven men specifically to oversee uh, this care for the widows. And the word of God tells us that they chose these seven men and these seven men were full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And when you're reading scripture, If you pay attention, sometimes you can get a little hint of what the author of Scripture wants us to focus our attention on, even before he gets there. For example, last week we saw that of the seven men that they chose in Acts chapter 6, verse 5, the very first one listed of those seven was Stephen, wasn't it? And so he's the first one mentioned and another clue, another hint that the writer of scripture, that Luke is going to be narrowing his focus in on Stephen. Another hint is that Stephen is the only one that is his uh, description is kind of amplified a little bit because it mentions all seven's name, but it only says of Stephen specifically a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. That's not to say that the others weren't because in order for these seven to be chosen earlier, it said that these needed to be people who were faithful. They needed to be people who were of good character and full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. It says in verse three, but when Luke lists the seven men, he highlights Stephen puts putting his name first and also specifically saying of him, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. It's a little hint, a little clue that Stephen is going to become our next focus. This happens all the time in the Old Testament. All the time in the Old Testament, when you see, like, for example, a genealogy, either where that genealogy starts or where it ends, or maybe there's an extra description of someone in that genealogy, that's where the writer of Scripture is going next. That, that's the person that we're going to focus on. And so we're about to focus on the ministry, the witness of a man named Stephen. And so in the first seven verses of the chapter, we see Stephen functioning as a servant. He is overseeing this ministry, making sure that this particular need of the church is met. Now, in this next section, we're going to see Stephen functioning as a witness. He is going to serve as a witness to the Lord and to the gospel. And it says in verse 8 that Stephen was a man full of God's grace and power. 
and performed great wonders and signs among the people. But opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. And they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Let's bow in prayer together. Father, today, as we look at this portion of the life of Stephen and his ministry, and we see the opposition to his ministry that he faced, Father, I pray that you would help us to learn the truths that your word has for us here today. Help us to see uh, what you were doing in Stephen's life and in the life of the early church. Help us to see how we might apply it to our situations today in your church. And so, Father, may your spirit teach us. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. I mentioned this toward the beginning when we began this study through the book of Acts, that one of the challenges of reading Acts and applying it and drawing theology from it is the challenge of knowing what is unique to that moment in church history and what is normative for the life of the church for generations to come. And so that's a challenge. And so, for example, in Acts chapter 2, when we see the Holy Spirit come on the day of Pentecost and the, the disciples who are gathered there begin to speak in tongues, some in the more Pentecostal and charismatic tradition would understand that as being normative for the whole church and every age of the church, all the generations to come, and say that it's normal, normative for all Christians to speak in tongues all the time, and that's something that we should seek. Whereas I think a, a more proper, a better understanding of that passage is that this is a unique moment in the history of the church. This is a, a special time that is fulfilling a promise of Jesus that he would send them the Holy Spirit. And to give evidence, to give proof that in fact that promise had been fulfilled and the Spirit had indeed come, he enables them to do this miraculous sign, to speak in tongues, which are at that time, known languages that people understood in their own native tongues. And so we have to wrestle with that. Every passage that we read through in Acts, we have to remember this is a history. This is a narrative. The writer is relaying to us things that happened. 
not everything that he says is something that we should expect to be normative for us today in every age. Nevertheless, even with that understanding, there are still principles, there are still things here that we can understand and we can draw from it that I think do apply to us in every age of the life of the church. And so I want us to help us see why Luke is putting this story here, what he's intending to communicate to us about the ministry of Stephen and the life of the early church, but then also what we can draw from it and apply for our lives today. And so one temptation when we read a passage like this is we should all be like Stephen. And Stephen's our model. He's our example in this. And so let's all be like Stephen. And that, that's only a part of the way to apply this passage. But there's something even bigger than that going on here that the Lord is doing through the life of Stephen. And so what I want to do is, is I want to look at this passage through a few different lenses. First, I want us to look at it through the lens of Stephen. Who is Stephen? What is he doing? What, what about him and his life can we learn and, and emulate and pattern our lives after? What can we learn? And then the second lens is, what do we see about uh, the unbelieving world, the fallen condition of man, and the way that they are opposing the ministry of Stephen? What, what can we learn about our world? and unbelievers in, in that. But then really the, the highest level, the biggest lens that I want us to see this in is, what is God doing? What is God doing through Stephen? And what is he doing specifically for the church in this particular story? And so let's look at it from those three perspectives. So first, let's look at it through the lens of Stephen and, and who he is and what we, what we can learn from him. Uh, we learn, first of all, if we go back to the last passage, that Stephen was a man uh, who was full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit. Because verse 3 of chapter 6, when they were deciding on choosing seven men to oversee this ministry of making sure the widow's needs were taken care of, one of the conditions was these seven men need to be known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. And so we can assume then that Stephen, being one of those chosen, that he's a man who has the Holy Spirit. And when, when it says a man full of the Holy Spirit, it's saying something specific about him. Because we all have the Holy Spirit, don't we? Every child of God, everyone born of the Spirit, regenerated by the Spirit's work, has the indwelling Spirit within him or her. That is a constant, permanent indwelling for every child of God. But what does it mean then when it says that he's full of the Holy Spirit? Well, Paul will tell us later in Ephesians 5 that we should all seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I think what essentially it means is that in Stephen's life, you can see very clearly exemplified on display the fact that the Holy Spirit's work was very evident in his life. How so? Well, by producing the fruit of the Spirit. What's the fruit of the Spirit? Love and joy and peace and gentleness and goodness and love. These are the the fruit of the Spirit. And by 
them saying that Stephen is full of the Spirit, it is saying that he has these qualities and they're clearly on display. There's no doubt that he has the Holy Spirit in his life and the Holy Spirit is guiding him and moving him toward Christ-likeness. He is a man of wisdom, which means that he is knowledgeable in the Scriptures. He is knowledgeable in the truth of the Word of God, but also then knowledgeable about how to apply the truth of Scripture to his life, to the life of the early church, and and how to uh, present and proclaim that Word of God even to a lost and unbelieving world. He's a man of wisdom. We also learn from the last passage that specifically of Stephen, it says in Acts 6 verse 5, that he was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. So again, it mentions the fact that he was full of the Holy Spirit, but now specifically mentions that he was full of faith. Meaning that there was no doubt to whom his faith was placed. Who his his faith was placed in, the object of his faith, was Jesus Christ and fully and completely devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Of Stephen, it could be said, uh, if you have faith as of the grain of a mustard seed, you'll say unto this mountain, be removed, and it will be removed. We can see from the life of Stephen that he had that mustard seed grain of faith, and he acted in accordance with the power of God on his life. And so he was full of wisdom. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He was full of faith. Every single one of those descriptions that I just gave can be applied to you and me as believers in Christ. We can be said to be full of the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us to seek that. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. We can be full of faith with our eyes completely focused, set on Jesus. We can be uh, full of wisdom by seeking the truth of Scripture and seeking to know and understand how better to apply the truth of Scripture to our lives and to our families and to our situations. All of those things can be applied to us. And so we, sh- we could say, and rightfully say, we should follow Stephen's example in that. Notice what else it says of Stephen. In verse 8, in our passage that we're specifically focused on this morning, it says, now Stephen a man full of God's grace and power. Can we say that we are full of God's grace? I think in a very specific sense, we can say, yes, we are full of God's grace. Because what is grace? Grace, fundamentally, is what God graciously bestows, generously bestows on someone else. It's a gift, isn't it? Grace is an undeserved, unmerited gift of favor. Every one of us, if we can say, I have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ and His work for me on the cross, we can say, I'm full of grace. God's grace has been lavished upon me. But I think for Stephen, this is saying something even beyond that. Not only that he has been a recipient of the the bountiful grace of God in Christ, but something specific is being said about Stephen here. And that is that he has been bestowed not only with gracious favor in being called a child of God and 
being a servant of God, but he's also been graciously bestowed with specific gifts. And it says, specifically in verse 8, with power. If we were to go to Ephesians chapter 4, we're not going to go there, but if we were to go over there, we would read that Paul says in that passage that the gifts that Christ bestows upon His church, Christ bestows those gifts upon His church according to His wisdom by grace. And so when it says that Stephen here is full of grace and power, I think it's specifically saying of him that Christ has bestowed upon Stephen through the power of the Holy Spirit the specific ability to do miraculous things like Peter and John have been doing already in the book of Acts. This is where I would say this is something specific to Stephen. This is something unique to him that the Lord has blessed him with. Not all of us are blessed with power like this. In fact, I would argue that the blessings, the gifts, specifically the miraculous gifts of healing and of speaking in tongues and of new revelation, that these specific gifts were unique to the age of the apostles while the foundation of the church was being laid. And even though Stephen himself is not one of the 12 apostles, he was appointed by the apostles and the apostles' hands were laid on him. And so he is working and functioning under the authority of the apostles in the early church. And specifically, Christ has bestowed on him these gifts of power. And so Stephen performed great wonders and signs among the people. Meaning, he did the things that Jesus did. The, the power of Jesus, even though Jesus has died, risen from the dead, ascended up to heaven to the right hand of God, the power of Jesus is continuing to be worked out in his church, isn't it? Through the apostles, through men like Stephen. He's doing the things that Jesus did. He's healing people who were sick. He's healing the lame. He's healing the blind. He's perhaps casting out demons. He's doing great wonders. He's doing the same things that Jesus did. He's doing the same things that Peter has been doing already in the book of Acts. Great signs and wonders. And, and the purpose of those signs and wonders is to go along with the message, isn't it? These signs and wonders serve to authenticate, to validate the message of the apostles, the message of Stephen, to show that they were legitimately servants of God and his representatives in giving his word. So the signs and the wonders accompanied the witness of Stephen. Notice also about Stephen in verse 11, that, uh, or in verse 10, when it says that opposition arose and they began to debate and argue with Stephen. Notice in verse 10 that they could not stand up against the wisdom that the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Why? Because he was a man who was immersed in the Scriptures. He was devoted to the Scriptures. He knew the Scriptures. He studied the Scriptures. But also, specifically, it says that the Spirit enabled him to have these words of wisdom. 
that no one could argue with, no one could dispute. This is exactly what Jesus promised His apostles, isn't it? What happened? When the Spirit comes, Jesus told His apostles before He left, before He died, He told His apostles, when you are delivered up, don't worry about what you will say in that hour because the Holy Spirit will teach you what you are to say. That's being fulfilled here in Stephen. The Holy Spirit is teaching him and the enemies of God are not able to contradict him. Just like when the opposition to Jesus came, the Sadducees or the Pharisees, and they tried to trip him up. They tried to get him caught in traps and Jesus eluded every single one of those. Jesus told his followers, I will help you in that day and they will not be able to speak against you or answer your words. Notice the last thing about Stephen that I just want to draw our attention to in this passage in verse 15. It said that as the Sanhedrin, this council that was gathered, was looking at Stephen, it said that his face was like the face of an angel. What does that mean? Commentaries have kind of disputed, disagreed a little bit about what they think this means. Some have suggested that perhaps supernaturally, Stephen's face was illuminated. Perhaps something like Moses was when, when Moses was reflecting the glory of God from the mountain. Or perhaps even like Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, that, that somehow Stephen's face was literally uh, reflecting the glory of God, the light of God. It's a possibility. I can't say with 100% certainty. Another possibility, and and I kind of lean in this direction, is that Stephen's face, even his very countenance, projected righteousness and innocence. And that he here, standing before this tribunal, that was accusing him and throwing all of these malicious and false accusations against him, that Stephen here was much like Jesus in that when he was accused, when he was reviled, he reviled not again. And he is innocent here. He is calm. He is uh, not afraid. He is full of faith, as it said earlier of him fully trusting in the Lord Jesus, no matter what happens. He is, it's like his eyes are fixed on God. His eyes are fixed on Jesus. In fact, interestingly enough, at the end of this whole story, we're going to see Stephen look up and see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And so when it says his face was like that of an angel, To me, I I see it not as something miraculous per se of his face radiating, but more like his face showed the evidence that he was God's servant. And it was clear for everybody to see. His faith, his, his confidence in God, his innocence, his righteousness in this, it was just evident on his face. That's Stephen. We may not have the same gifting, of Stephen in terms of grace and power to do miraculous signs and wonders. But there are certainly many other things of Stephen's life that we can say we should be like that. Because Stephen is emulating Christ in those things, isn't he? 
one of the commentaries that I was reading showed all of the parallels in this larger narrative of Stephen, all the parallels that parallel Christ, what happened to him. How he was falsely accused, how he stood before the Sanhedrin, how he even forgave those who were accusing him. Many of the elements in this story, Stephen parallels the life of Jesus when he was on trial. And I think we can learn from Stephen because Stephen was emulating Christ. It's much like what Paul said when he said, uh, follow me as I follow Christ. And so we can be people of faith, people full of the spirit, people of wisdom. We can learn from the life of Stephen here. But for a moment, let's look at the second lens. That is the fallen condition of man and the opposition that the world will bring to the truth of the gospel. It says that Stephen through his witness and performing great wonders. In verse 9, it says opposition arose, though. Opposition arose from members of the synagogue of the freedmen. Most people believe that what that signifies is that these were people who were former slaves, but now they have been freed. And they are part of this fellowship, this community, this assembly gathered together to read the scriptures, to worship God, in the Jewish synagogue. So these are Jews, but notice that they are Jews not of Jerusalem or of Judea. These are Jews from other places. It says they are Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria. Those are places in North Africa and Egypt. They are places, they're from provinces of Cilicia, which is right there in the Mediterranean, the, the, the southern Italy and also Asia, which would be what we would consider today modern-day Turkey, where the cities of Ephesus and Thyatira and Philadelphia, those cities were. And so they were from the whole Mediterranean world, the various parts of the Roman Empire. In other words, they were Hellenized Jews. They were Jews from Greek areas. Interestingly enough... Who were the widows in the first part of, the, of chapter 6 who were being overlooked in the distribution of food? It was the Hellenized Jewish widows. And I mentioned last week that the seven men that they chose to oversee that ministry, that interestingly enough, all seven of their names were Greek names, weren't they? And so most commentators assume that Stephen himself is a Hellenistic Jew. Because Stephen is probably from one of these other areas around the Roman world, but now he is here in Jerusalem. And so it's almost like Stephen would have normally been one of them. A Jew from one of these Hellenized areas, regions. But Stephen is a follower of the Lord Jesus and preaching the Lord Jesus and this group of his own people from the same regions, Jews, Hellenized Jews, they are opposing him now. What is the one thing that is different between them, between Stephen and this group of Hellenized Jews in this synagogue? Jesus, isn't it? Jesus. They're, of the, they're, they're the same. They're from the same areas. They're Jews. They're Greek Jews. Normally, they would have been in complete harmony and all on the same page. 
the one thing that separates them is Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus said? I came not to bring peace in the world, but a sword. And I'm going to divide father from son, mother from daughter. And the enemies of one of my disciples will be the enemies of his own household. These are people that normally would have been Stephen's people. But now they're opposing him. Why? Because he's now a follower of Jesus and a witness for Jesus. And so they started to argue with him and to debate him. That failed. They couldn't answer him. Stephen had all the answers. He had the scriptures behind him. He had the testimony of the prophets. He had the testimony of Moses behind him. He had the Holy Spirit teaching him what to say. They could not answer him. So, what does the world do when it can't defeat you with truth? It'll try to defeat you with falsehood. And so verse 11 says that they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. In other words, they slandered him and they spread lies and malicious rumors about Stephen and got everybody stirred up against him. And verse 12 says they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law and they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin and then they produced false witnesses who testified and said, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Now, let me ask you a question. Are these accusations that they're bringing against Stephen true? They're not, but the problem is, is that there's enough little hint of truth in them to make them believable. They say, this man, Stephen, is saying that Jesus of Nazareth is going to destroy this place. What were they talking about? The temple. Did Jesus ever say, I am going to destroy this temple? Jesus never said that. Jesus said two things related to this. He said on one occasion, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. Now notice, he did not say, I'm going to destroy this temple. He just said, destroy this temple. If you were to destroy this temple, if this temple were to be destroyed, I will raise it up again in three days. So Jesus never said, I'm going to destroy this temple, but also, too, more importantly, he wasn't even talking about the building, was he? When he said that, he was talking about himself, because what is going to be raised up in three days? Jesus himself. So that's a total misunderstanding of what Jesus said. But that's what people do, isn't it? That's what the enemy does. Doesn't the enemy like to take something that was said and then to twist it and to take it out of context and to manipulate it and make it look like something completely the opposite of what you said. That's what they're doing with Jesus and with Stephen's words here. The other place where Jesus said something about the destruction of the temple, again, he said nothing about himself destroying the temple, 
But he did predict, like a prophet, that because the Jews had rejected Jesus, God was going to bring judgment on the city, and the city would be besieged, and the temple would be destroyed. What was he predicting? He was predicting the fall of Jerusalem and the temple to the Romans in AD 70, which was literally fulfilled about 40 years later after the time of Jesus. But did Jesus say, I'm going to destroy this temple? No, he didn't. He predicted its fall because the people were rebellious and rejected God's servant. And the Romans were going to destroy it. But they took the words of Jesus and now the words of Stephen and they're twisting them and they're manipulating them to say something different than what he had said. The second charge was, and he's trying to change the customs that Moses handed down to us. Did Jesus ever say, I'm throwing out Moses and the law? No, in fact, he said in Matthew 5, 17, I came not to abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill it. And so they had a misunderstanding about what Stephen was saying. And they opposed him with everything they could. When they couldn't get him with truth, they opposed him with lies and with slander and malicious falsehoods and gossip and rumors. And they they tried to change his words into something other than what he said. So let me just say this to us as believers. Learn one lesson from this passage for us with regard to the ways of the world. Do not expect the unbelieving world to play fair. Do not expect the unbelieving world to play fair. Because they won't. When it comes to the truth, they will undermine it, they will twist it, they will flip it upside down, they will dilute it, they will poison it. Whatever they can do, they will do. They, will, they do not operate by the rules of justice or fairness or truth. Do not expect them to. They're unbelievers. They're captive to sin. And they're captive to their father, the devil, who is the father of lies. So do not expect the world, the unbelieving world, to play fair. But now let's step back and look at the larger lens of what God is doing. What is God doing here? God is building His church, isn't He? God is building His church. He's building His church through Stephen and his ministry. And what the Lord is doing in this is He is allowing this opposition, this persecution to come, knowing that it will cause the rapid multiplication and the spread of the gospel to the world. What is the main theme verse of the whole book of Acts? Acts 1.8 You shall receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem, where Stephen is, but then in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. This persecution, this opposition that is intensifying is going to have the result 
of causing the apostles and people like Stephen and Philip, another one of the seven who were chosen, is going to have the effect of causing these men to go out from Jerusalem to other areas where the persecution is not as severe. And as they go out, like a ripple effect, when a rock hits the water, it goes outward, so goes the gospel. When the church is being persecuted, the gospel is going to go out to the nations. Tertullian said that the church was built on the blood of the martyrs. said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And notice the intensification of the opposition. What do they do with Peter and John when they first arrested them? They warn them. Don't talk about Jesus. Don't speak in his name. What did they do the second time that they arrested them? They flogged them. They beat them and said, don't talk anymore in Jesus' name. This is now the third time that one of Jesus' followers is standing before the tribunal of the Sanhedrin in Acts. And how does this end? Stephen dies. The, The opposition is intensifying to the gospel. But that is not something to be afraid of. It's something that God uses to build his church and to grow his church. And so let me encourage us that God uses all means, all good and necessary means to build his church. And that includes hardship and opposition and difficulty and persecution. And so let us not be afraid to be witnesses for the gospel in the face of an unbelieving and hostile world. Because if we're like Stephen, then even though we may die in this world, we'll see the face of Jesus. And so let us be the instruments of God in building and growing his church. Notice who Stephen was. Stephen wasn't one of the 12, was he? He wasn't one of the 12. He was a deacon. He was a servant in the church but he was still a faithful witness to the gospel, wasn't he? All of us, if you're a child of God, if you're saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're one of his children, then you have been given the great commission to be a witness for the gospel. And so let us go in boldness with the spirit inside of us and let us be witnesses to the gospel, not fearing what man can do to us, but trusting fully in the Lord Jesus, like Stephen, full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. Let's bow in prayer together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you were doing through the apostles, through Stephen, your servant. Thank you for what we can learn from his ministry, what we can learn from what you, our wise God, was doing through him. Father, I pray that you would use us in our place, in our time, to be your witnesses. Each of us, Lord, have people that we know that need to hear the message of Jesus. People in our own families, people that we work with, people that we live nearby, friends, 
We all have these relationships and we all have people in our lives that need to hear the truth of Jesus. God, give us wisdom to share that message. Give us confidence and courage to share that message. Not fearing what man can do to us. Lord, may our faith, may our confidence be in you, not in us. And may we have our eyes fixed on that which is above, where Christ is, not that which is below. Lord, bless us as your church. And Lord, I pray that you would use us to be your witnesses in the world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.